Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, and this week I'll be playing double duty as both host and guest. You see, while I spend most of my podcasting time on the Quillette Podcast, I also sometimes appear on other shows. This month that included the new SpeechCast podcast, hosted by David Bernstein, the Washington, D.C.-based founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. And as it turned out, I had such a great conversation with David that we thought it might be interesting for Quillette podcast listeners to get to hear it as well. David interviewed me about Quillette, cancel culture, the state of liberalism, the New York Times, Fox News, Seth Rogen, dog shampoo, my new book about the history of film exhibition coming out in October, Judaism, learning Hebrew, childhood vacations at Del Boca Vista, Zionism, and synagogue politics. And if you like what you're hearing, you can hear David regularly by checking out the SpeechCast podcast, a joint venture between the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and the Speech Project of the Jewish Journal. Oh, and one more thing. In this interview, you'll hear me talk about a fellow Canadian writer whom I call Jeffrey Rosen. His real name is Joseph Rosen. Joseph, if you're listening, sorry about that. This is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. I'm delighted to have with us Jonathan Kay, who is an editor at Quillette magazine. He's also a columnist for the National Post in Canada. He's a book author and editor. His newest book coming in October is Magic in the Dark. It's about film exhibition in New York City. It's one family's century of adventures in the movie business, co-authored by Charles B. Moss Jr. We'll talk a little bit about that a little later in the podcast. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. So Jonathan, I've followed you probably much longer than you followed me. I've been very interested by Quillette from its beginnings. I remember saying, finally, somebody's writing about some of these issues that were plaguing me and yet felt like they had no public expression. So I don't know. I'm sure there were other places where these ideas were being brought out, but I hadn't seen them. How did you get involved in Quillette? What about your personal ideology and worldview that brought you to Quillette? Well, it was very much, as you just described, I don't think there was anything like it. I am somebody who worked at a conservative newspaper in Canada called the National Post, and I became kind of, I don't know, disaffected is the right word. I, I like the newspaper, but I didn't, I don't consider myself really a conservative. And like a lot of the stuff they were doing on, say, global warming, skepticism, like, you know, I, I found myself at odds with it. And, and then I went to this ultra progressive magazine in Canada because I was offered the editor in chief job. It's, seemed prestigious and came with good money. And after just two years, I realized that wasn't for me because I, I was also alienated by all these dogmas on the left. Uh, and, I, and I think they didn't find my presence helpful because I was skeptical of a lot of stuff that they kind of accepted as can't. And when I quit that job, at that time, I, I didn't think I really was going to stay in journalism. I had a fairly lucrative job as, as a ghostwriter. I still do that. I, I actually love ghostwriting. I was writing books. 
I was thinking of getting into podcasting. I was 50 years old. I thought, well, maybe, you know, I've had a good 20 year run in journalism. I'll, I'll do something else. And then I saw Quillette and I was like, you know what? That's, <laughs> I'm going to have to reconsider that because it was a website that critiqued conservatives where they had to be critiqued and it critiqued progressives. I think it's more known for critiquing progressives, but that's only because I think it's more controversial to critique progressives. And in the current climate, even the mildest critique of progressive ideology, sometimes people blow it up as a kind of hate speech. It reawakened my love of journalism because I, I had a home where I didn't have to apologize for, for being skeptical of both sides. Would you describe yourself as an ideological middle of the rotor or are you sort of, do you sort of lean in one direction? It's a cliche to rely on the left-right spectrum. Mm -hmm. it's, also, it's also become a cliche to say that it is a cliche to rely on the left-right spectrum. <laughs> right. like, like it's become a sort of meta-cliche. But I do think in the current environment, it's sometimes more helpful to look at methodology in the sense of if you're on the left or the right and you are looking for heresies in almost a religious sense, if you're saying, aha, you know, you don't agree that trans women are exactly the same as biological women, or you don't love Donald Trump, you know, if you're a Republican conservative and you critique Donald Trump and you're sort of cast out of conservative circles because of that. To me, that method, that quasi-religious method of hunting for heresies, of excommunicating people because of a single, what is perceived as a single ideological sin, that is the thing that I'm most concerned about on both sides of the spectrum. It's the subject of a lot of my writing, but I'm not even sure that counts as ideological per se. Right. It's epistemological in some ways. I, I don't use the E word because- it, No one knows what know, it means. Well, also people turn off the podcast when they hear words <laughs> like right. that. I was just down in Tennessee for a week. And it's interesting that I was hanging out with some good friends in Tennessee. They happen to be conservatives, but a lot of the conservative ideas they were saying, the very conservative part of, of the United States, obviously, I felt the same lights in my brain kind of lighting up in opposition to what they were saying, much as if I'm on progressive Twitter and I heard progressive talking points that right. I found. Look, ideologically, the short answer is, I guess I see myself as a classical liberal. I believe in due process and free speech and all that stuff. In the way liberalism was defined maybe five or 10 years ago before it got hijacked by people who are just completely obsessed with identity politics. But I, I don't focus on that so much in the current environment. I focus more on the methodology of argumentation and trying to reclaim a more rational and objective way of looking at the world. Yeah. Did anything happen in your life where you canceled, were you affected by the current ideological environment in a way that sent you to the Quillette Hills? I mean, how, how did that happen? I mean, these days people kind of, it's almost like bragging about being canceled. It's right. I don't think I could make that claim. When I kind of made my definitive break from progressive circles, this is shortly before I joined Quillette, this is going back to 2017. I mostly did it on my own terms. So I, I can't claim to have been canceled. I had been in the business long enough that I had plenty of connections. I was able to keep writing columns for my old newspaper. One of the first things I did when I quit that job is, is I wrote for half a dozen different American magazines just, just because I wanted to get my name associated with other media outlets and make a clean break from that. And then I also just jumped into a bunch of book projects. But I think there is certainly no way I could go back to this progressive Canadian literary subculture in that little silo. I'm definitely, I don't know if canceled the right word, but <laughs> there's no way the Canadian equivalent of Harper's Magazine is not going to come calling for, for me to write features for them. But I did experience enough of it 
to be able to edit the work of people who truly have been canceled. So I think it was, it was important to get a small taste of what it is for people in a particular subculture to just completely try to demonize you because of your ideas and then trying to extrapolate from that. Imagine if that was your whole life. Like imagine if you're a poet and you didn't do ghostwriting, you didn't have a day job and all you did was write poetry and edit poetry. And maybe like you had a contract position at a local community college to teach poetry. And somebody in the poetry world said, you're never having anything to do with poetry again. We're never going to publish your poetry. That's true cancellation because right. that's like you're in a silo and you're out of the silo and you're and there's nothing else for you. The only other thing for you is flipping burgers at Burger King or go back to school and become a locksmith or something like that's true cancellation. I've never experienced that, but I kind of have experienced the demonization or the attempt at demonization that gives me a, a taste, like 1% of what those people are experiencing. And in a sense, it was a blessing because then, you know, I've edited dozens and dozens of pieces by people who truly were canceled. And I was able to deal with them with at least some kind of empathy or understanding. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it, it ended up being kind of good for my career, though at the time it was annoying. The New York Times, at one point, there's a quote for me uh, recently I describe myself as an ideological ambulance chaser. <laughs> when, right. when people get canceled, they come to me and, and I help them tell their stories. Right. Can you give me an example or two of people you've helped write for Quillette that you feel really, really express the current ideological problem, really are examples of cancellation? Did anything stand out in your mind, I guess? I think the purest example and the reason I keep coming back to poetry is because it's especially here in Canada but I think it's in the United States is there's a, a small number of gatekeepers philanthropists or publishers uh, and this tends to be true of all industries where people get canceled is a very small number of gatekeepers can, can decide if you're canceled and there's a guy by the name of Joseph Massey M-A-S-S-E-Y like most successful poets he's not a household name it's a niche art but he was very successful. He got canceled a few years ago. Anybody who wants to know the details can Google Joseph Massey and Quillette. His story was really like within the space of maybe 24 hours, 48 hours of some bogus allegations being made on social media. I guess this is going back about three years. This is kind of when you could still do that and there wasn't pushback because now there are people who become very skeptical of it and there's a whole machinery of pushback. But at the time there wasn't. And his whole, his whole career ended, bang. He had a teaching gig at a very prestigious university. He had a book contract coming up. The call went out in the industry through social media because social media is now sort of used as by ideological enforcers to keep people online. If you are on the side of, of light and goodness, you will help us end the career of this person. And if you don't do that, it means you're on the side of Darth Vader. It's an unusually crystal clear example of it. What's, what's he doing now? He's still writing poetry. He's, he's written his story. He's, he has found a way to keep going, but it's defined him as being a kind of anti-poet, if you will, in the same way that Barry Weiss at the New York Times. I mean, I think she has more readers now than maybe she did before because her, her substack is so popular. Right. But in a way, she will always be known as the kind of anti-New York Times writer because it was such a defining breach when, when she left and she started up her substack. And, and even if 90% of the stuff she publishes on her Substack is stuff that maybe could appear in the New York Times or in a year or two could appear in the New York Times after the social panic was over, it will still define her. And in the case of Joseph Massey, if he could publish 10 more books of poetry, he will still be marked 
and, and, and that's a defining thing. As many articles as I've published by canceled people, I have sat on a lot of articles by canceled people, when, which never went to press. There's a, there's a Canadian woman who has an incredible story to tell uh, about getting canceled in Canadian arts and letters. I edited the thing and I was about to hit the publish button and I, I could tell she was hesitant. I said to her, I said, are you ready for this? Like, this is sort of your defining manifesto where you break from everyone who's been your friend and colleague for the last couple of years. And basically this is, this is your Jacques. Are you ready for that? And, and, you know, she emailed me back and said, you know what, I, I'm not ready because once you do that, the tribe will never accept you back. I mean, I argue that most, you'll never get accepted back anyway, but this is like a hundred percent. Right. You know, it's interesting because I, I probably would have done the exact same thing. And I've had some conversations with people. I'm not a magazine editor, but about coming out or being on my podcast, for example, which could be a you know, kiss of death for somebody um, who's not, you know, who's in a certain kind of position in the Jewish world. But I, I, there was a piece yesterday in Barry's Substack by Abigail Schreier, who wrote the uh, recent book on girls becoming trans and has been a controversial figure. And the book's been banned, as you know, at, I think at Target for a while. I don't know if it's been reinstated. It was for a while and then taken off again and Amazon and so forth. And she wrote a piece about how, you know, the first hundred or so emails that she received from admirers said, I, I, I commend you for your courage, but I can't do that because I would ruin my life. And at some point she said, now it's time for courage. I mean, and I, I feel this tension in myself where I want to tell people, you know, I, I understand I was in a job where I couldn't have come out and expressed my authentic views, but at some point, some of us have to actually come out and take some risks. And maybe we should stop telling people that they shouldn't have to because they're going to damage their life because otherwise liberalism is never going to come back in, in full force. What do, you, what do you think of that line of argumentation? Here's the problem. Thanks to social media, not just social media, but other forces in our society, there is a very close intermingling of professional and social circles. I'd say 20 years ago before social media, you could segment your professional and personal life. You could be somebody, I don't know, like a famous author or a public figure or an activist who did a lot of controversial stuff professionally, but then in their neighborhood, maybe people wouldn't even know that this was a famous person or to the extent they knew he was famous, it was just somebody who walked the dog and came over for Tupperware parties or whatever. But thanks to social media, that's now impossible because if you're on Twitter or Facebook, you know, your editor might be on, in your channels and your next door neighbor may jump in on a chat. And the guy you went to college with and, and your college age children. So there's this intermingling. So right. when you decide, okay, I'm going to do this controversial thing. It isn't just certain segments of your professional circle that you're alienating. You're also like maybe creating a breach with high school friends because right. a you know, big phenomenon now is people graduate from college and they don't make friends in their community because their friendships are sort of stuck in amber in their, in their social media circles. Even 10 or 20 years later, those are the people whose opinions they care about, people they went to Brandeis with. You know what the analogy I use for people is the Hasidic community in, in, in Judaism. Actually, when I was at this magazine, one of the pieces I was very proud of, there was a piece by, his name was Jeffrey Rosen, who lived, still lives in Montreal. And he lived in a sort of Hasidic sandwich. He, he lived in a triplex. He had a, a Hasidic family on top and a Hasidic family below him. It's a, a part of Montreal known as uh, Outremont. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's an happens to be an extremely Jewish and extremely Hasidic part of Outremont. This guy is, is like me. He's, he's, he's largely secularized and he doesn't keep a kosher home and, and so forth. But 
he was genuinely curious about the Hasidic community and he became friends with a few of them. And at one point, like there was one guy, I don't know if he was gay or, but like he was clearly, he, he didn't belong in that community for a variety of reasons. And, and Jeffrey Rosen asked him, why are you still there? Like, why don't you just say, hey, see you later, folks. So I'm moved to New York or go to college. And, I'll... and the guy told me, he said, look, I love my family. I love my friends. There are parts of this community I like. You, you want me on, on principle, on a point of principle to reject all of the people I love and, and start a new life, like at the age of 30? Like how many people would do that? And right. the reason this guy faced that decision is because the Hasidic way of life is, is a totalizing way of life in right. the sense that the people, you do business, yeah. the, the people you do business with are often the people you go to the same synagogue with, and they might even be cousins. And like, it's, there is no, well, there might be in some cases, I, I don't want to generalize, but you know, generally speaking, there's, there's a lot of overlap between professional and social lives. Ironically, in their bid to recapture 18th century shtetl life from Poland, that dynamic that Hasidic community is trying to recreate, that dynamic has an odd similitude with 21st century social media culture, in which you got the same overlap between your professional and social circles. And when you get excommunicated from one, it can mean being excommunicated from the other. Yeah. So you're in Canada, you live in Toronto, correct? I live in Toronto, yeah. How would you characterize the situation in Canada versus the United States, the ideological environment? In the United States, you have this counterweight on the conservative side, which is, which is called Christianity. You have a substantial portion, it's a shrinking portion, but it's still a very substantial portion of the population that subscribes to their evangelical Christians. They're regular churchgoers. They have socially conservative views. And so you have this built-in constituency that, for good or ill, are never going to get sucked into progressive ideological manias. They get sucked into their own ideological manias, vaccine stuff and global warming denialism and the Trump cult. But they are a built-in opposition party to progressive manias. In Canada, the conservative Christian constituency is fairly marked. It's not non-existent. I mean, they're, I live in Ontario. There are parts of rural Ontario where there's a, there's a lot of them. Toronto, there, there isn't. And if you look at the big urban districts in Canada, uh, and even most big suburban districts in Canada, it's, uh, or ridings as they're known here, it's not a big deal. So what happens is when the educated class gets swept up in a progressive ideological mania, there's no pushback. There is a party in Canada called the Conservative Party, but on most issues, anything touching with identity, if they deviate at all from progressive orthodoxy, there's a whole media apparatus waiting to slam them as American-style racists. But so you this- what you're saying is it's worse in Canada than it is in the United States. It's worse if you define the problem as a lack of ability to dissent from pretty radical progressive ideological manias. But America is worse in the sense that you have a more extreme form of polarization. Canada is becoming an ideologically monopolar society, which is bad. America is becoming more of a you have two poles, but the poles are going further and further apart. When I look at my conservative American friends' Facebook pages, it's still full of all this stuff about like voter fraud and, you know, ivermectin vaccine stuff. But then you go to the progressive pages and it's like right. pro-Antifa stuff. And now you could say, well, at least you have a balance, but that balance doesn't express itself in a centrist way. So neither society really 
is on a sustainable, stable path toward any kind of centrist politics. But you have two different problems, I would argue. Canada seems bent on inheriting a lot of America's problems. Like the American obsession with race wasn't a thing in Canada until fairly recently. I mean, obviously, races and racism are problems in every, every society. But thanks to social media, we had a march against police brutality in Canada, in Toronto after George Floyd, where people were saying like Toronto police force is just as bad as the Minneapolis police force. And then you look at the numbers and it's like, well, actually, we have on a per capita basis, one twentieth the amount <laughs> of police brutality claims and, uh, and tragic incidents. But that didn't mean anything. You know, right. These marchers in Toronto were fired up with the idea that our society is every bit as racist, every bit as violent as urban societies in the United States. They're just convinced that through the alchemy of racism, they are as guilty as, as everyone in the United States. And I was just, I was just in, in Lebanon, Tennessee, and I did a COVID test because I needed to, to, to get, come back to Canada. And the only thing I had to put on the form was my name, my birthday, and my race. This is an American thing, this obsession with skin color. Canada has started to do this. We're, we're, yeah, we're, but I'm wondering, is that because they're trying to they're trying to link health outcomes to to race? I mean, we've seen that discourse in the United States. Those assertions that health disparities are a function of racial discrimination, and, and they're looking for evidence of that by asking race during the COVID test. I'm sure that's why they're asking it, right? Presumably, and in fact you can pretty much look at any metric in the United States and you will get a racial breakdown. Like, so, you know, this data that Americans take for granted about how many blacks voted for the Democrats, how many blacks voted for the Republicans or, uh, you know, during the primaries, there was all this detailed data about your skin color and and which candidate you supported. That information has never existed in Canada. Even to this day, it's mostly anecdotal. Um, Interesting. And and European intellectuals are starting to complain about the same stuff. Like you have French sociologists who said like this critical race theory stuff basically it's french postmodernism that mm. americans americans turned into a racial obsession and then exported back to the rest of the world right your cultural imperialism knows no bounds right yeah we're good at it when you look at the u.s and you see these two opposite poles do you see the same thing on both sides and by that i mean when you talk about what's happening on the left i can point to a very specific ideological framework, you know, I call it critical social justice ideology, but you know, that taken hold in the left, yet I'm not sure I could say the same about the right. Obviously, there's irrationality that's taken root. Do you think it's the same? Or do you think we're seeing different things on both sides of the ideological spectrum? I think conservatives are still looking for a coherent ideology to replace some of the certainties that Christian religiosity and unfettered capitalism once supplied. But I definitely think conservatives are more in flux in terms of what they believe. Here in Canada, I've argued that the Conservative Party should change its name because to the extent conservatism has any fixed meaning, there is no conservative movement really in Canada. There's no politically mainstream anti-abortion movement. There's no real politically mainstream movement for capital punishment. We live in a welfare state. Even the Conservative Party here in Canada supports the welfare state. I certainly think conservatives are more in flux in terms of what are the things we believe, whereas progressives, even if you hate what they argue for, they at least have the certainty of dogmas. Mm. And, and often in a battle of ideas, it's the side that can write down their ideas in a more concrete form that win, because they at least can articulate their demands. And now a message from another podcast. 
the award-winning Jordan Harbinger Show, starring Jordan Harbinger, master of the thinking man's and thinking woman's human interest genre. Now that the lockdowns are over and people are getting back to some of their usual habits, including traveling around the country for long car rides and vacations, we're all going to need to load up our devices with fresh podcasts. So direct your software, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is you use, to The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B, like Bob, I-N-G-E-R. And there you'll find, among other great guests, Quillette writer Nicholas Christakis talking about pandemic impacts and contagious behaviors, Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about cosmic queries and the acutely curious, and distancing from junkie siblings self-jinxing. Like I said, this is a podcast that hits the sweet spot between education and entertainment, real-life stories, and big-picture theorizing. Thanks to The Jordan Harbinger Show for their support, and now back to our own Quillette podcast. There's a lot of talk about how this might end or whether or not there's going to be sufficient pushback from people, both, I guess, on the right and on the center left or from the classical liberal, liberal humanist wing to eventually sort of carve out a place for liberalism again and put back critical social justice ideology in its place. And yet, you know, I'm not so sure that's going to happen. I, I don't know about your degree of confidence. Maybe you'll talk about that. It seems to me that there's there's trends going in both directions. You cited the fact that there's now a mob going in the opposite direction. So whenever someone's canceled, there's a group of people who come out on social media and stand up for them. So I think that's sort of a welcome sign. Maybe it's got its negative implications as well. But all And there's a new field emerging. My group, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, is one such organization among many. We're forming something called the Institute for Liberal Values, which is a consortium of groups that are fighting the good fight. So that's all happening. Yet it seems to me this is also generational. And you have a younger generation, Gen Z, maybe some millennials who have really bought into this ideology. And that may not go away just because they enter the, the workforce and um, you know become CEOs or get elected to office. What's your feeling on where, where this is all going? The problem is that liberalism, classical liberalism, has no dependable or passionate constituency. In the sense that if you are a classical liberal, and again, I probably use that term to describe myself, you're defending free speech. And what does defending free speech mean? It means to the extent that protection is meaningful, it means defending speech that's obnoxious or that you disagree with. If you are defending due process, that often means defending criminals. If you're defending freedom of of faith and conscience, that often means defending religions, including radicalized forms of those religions in some cases, So to be a liberal, there's there's a built-in drawback to liberalism, which is you're always defending, in substance, views and actions that you may disagree with, but you say, on principle, we have to tolerate that. That becomes more difficult in the face of any kind of social panic or mania or hysteria or strongly felt reaction to things. And those things in turn tend to be driven, what are they driven by? They're driven by video. They're driven by Twitter mobs. It's one thing to say, you know what? I tolerate views I disagree with, such such as hate speech or stuff that's presented as hate speech. It's another thing when you click on the YouTube video and you see the face of the guys, oh man, look at that guy. He's spun that crap. I want that guy to shut up. I don't care about free speech. We need to shut that guy. We need to delete his account. We need to find where he works and fire him. You may not have that reaction if you didn't see if his YouTube video weren't one click away. In the same way, if you were conservative, maybe you wouldn't be as agitated against Islam 
if you were one click away from say videos of terrorist attacks or you know stuff going on in Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, places you'll never visit, half a world away, but some someone puts a video of some horrible thing happening there and suddenly it's immediate and you become radicalized against a faith community in your town. That's a social media thing. And I would argue that social media pushes people away from liberalism because you're always seeing the worst of the world. You're always seeing right. the worst of your enemies and you're seeing it in a format video, which is highly emotive. The enemy of liberalism is reflexive, emotional responses to stuff. And you saying, I don't care what we need to do. We need to stop that. We need to shut that person up. We need to punish those people. And I don't care about what my principles were 10 minutes ago. I want it done now. Jonathan Rausch, as, and you know, he just came out with his book, Constitution Knowledge, is actually more optimistic than most of us are on this because he feels that eventually social media will become like, you know, print media over time and start to patrol itself and that he sees signs of sort of uh, an intermediation taking place in social media that will eventually police itself and prevent the worst of social media from infecting society. Do you share that optimism? No, <laughs> no, because you have to follow the money. When you had a three channel universe, I'm in my early fifties. I'm old enough to remember when I think there were only five or six channels. We got. Channel four, six, 10 and 13 was PBS in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio. That is. So in, in Montreal, it was three was CBS, five was NBC, 17 was ABC, 11 was CTV and 13 was CBC. <laughs> right. I, mean, I could live to 200 and I will, I will remember those numbers. In those days, every one of those stations had to cater to a broad audience. To the extent they were catering to a broad audience, it means they had to like shear off the ideological ends of the bell curve. It meant that there was no offensive conservative stuff by the standards mm. of the day. And there was no offensive progressive stuff by the standards of the day. And it, they were catering to what was perceived to be middle America or middle Canada or everything was pretty bland. I mean, you look at the TV shows of the day, they were crap because no one could take risks. Now that we have on-demand video, people can take risks with shows. And if you don't like it, you, you know, you don't watch it. And newspapers, you know, Montreal had one or two newspapers. Well, French language is three or four. Create a newspaper was a big deal. It was a, you know, a lot of capital costs, a lot of investment. Every city had a few. Start a website or streaming services, stuff like that. It's much more of an a la carte situation. And social media is the ultimate a la carte situation. There are millions of Twitter accounts and you follow the 117 that you like. The economic necessity of tailoring your content to a centrist constituency, which was built into the economic model of print media, of, of mass broadcast, that's gone. And in mm. fact, it's, it's centrifugal. The content that's the most attractive to people on social media is the stuff that's not right in the middle. It's the stuff that's on the wings. You know, you're watching Rachel Maddow because you agree with her or because you hate Rachel Maddow. Circulating Tucker Carlson videos because you agree with that or because you're a progressive and saying, look, look what this crazy person is saying. But either way, I don't, in my feed, I don't get a lot of people saying, hey, check out what this guy in BBC World is saying about the upcoming election in Zambia. That's like, gets three hits. No one no. cares. BBC World Service, tons of good content. A lot of it just doesn't get circulated because it doesn't create outrage or stoke tribal instincts on, on either side. I'm still a print New York Times subscriber. New York Times still has a lot of great content once they keep away from what 23-year-olds are putting on their Slack channels. The stuff that I tweet from the New York Times, like, hey, check out this great obituary of this football player, like five people will retweet that. Right. But by, I, the way, by the way, Roush argues 
fact that the very fact that the New York Times um, has a lot of great content still, it shows you that it's not completely captured. I think he, he resists this metaphor of institutional capture that a lot of people are using, including myself sometimes, that because, because what he's saying is, yeah, that's true. They're, the way that they, they may look at everything through a racial equity lens and the way that they write stories on race, but there's still a lot of stories that are just excellent journalism that you see in the Times that have nothing to do with, with race. And it seems like you're affirming that. I am affirming it, but there's also a cycle of distrust. I, sometimes I circulate, again, I'll go in with the obituary example, to the extent people comment, it's like, yeah, New York Times, I don't know. Like, right, right. And I'm I like, well, you know, <laughs> you know, read the article. It has nothing to do with ideology. It's just like, and by the way, some of these obituaries were written like 10 years ago. They have canned obituaries. And, and there are cases where obituaries are written by people, the authors of the obituaries are themselves dead because they wrote it and they passed away, but, but people still don't trust it because of the brand. And I'll give you another example. This has nothing to do with New York Times, but a friend of mine did a YouTube video. It was a podcast much like this one. And he and his friend were, were talking about anti-vax conspiracy theories. And the people who ran the YouTube channel are not anti-vax conspiracy theorists. They were kind of debunking some of this anti-vax conspiracism. But because they played audio from an anti-vax conspiracy theorist, YouTube flagged it and banned their YouTube video. For them, it's exasperating. But it's also the fact that now, if I'm, if I'm ever talking to an anti-vax conspiracy theorist, they will cite the fact that YouTube is removing content that supports their position. They'll say, oh, you really need to watch this video. It, it proves I'm right. And, I'll, and they'll say, ah, but you can't watch it because YouTube took it down. And so you'll never know this truth. And, so, and how do you debate against that? And that incredible distrust, unfortunately, that distrust is leaching into all media. And so you have people who, if they look at the New York Times and they look at two or three articles, especially like in the, the Sunday review section, which becomes this like garbage can of woke essays and stuff like that. To the extent I read it, it does poison my appreciation of a lot right. of this, like 99% of the material, which isn't ideological. Or look at this incredible science writer his name is he went to peru of all places basically on this money-making new york times junket for spoiled upper-class white families and you know said the wrong thing in front of some teenager who kind of reported him for thought crime and he was gone and this is a guy when you talk about like non-ideological high quality new york times journalism this guy i mean he is like exhibit a you know so much so that even after he got canned the New York Times was hyping him to awards committees. Right. For his so that he get right. Exactly. I mean, it's just the ultimate so. hypocrisy. My question then becomes who replaces him? Is his replacement somebody like him? Or is his replacement somebody who's like, you know, in the interview process, like, well, we had a problem with the last guy. So where do you stand on colonialism and critical race theory? The people who walk in the door to replace some of these old schoolers, they're bringing stuff into the newsroom, which might militate against good objective journalism. So I, I'm, so I do not share Jonathan Rausch's optimism. If you had uh, written a piece for Quillette or were involved in the writing of a piece for Quillette and it, became, it went viral and you got a call from Tucker Carlson to come on his show, would you, would you take it? I wouldn't do Tucker Carlson. I've done Fox a few times to promote books. So I was on Fox a couple of months ago because <laughs> I was involved in this, this crazy thing. I tweeted a joke about there's some people listening that probably know this that i tweeted a joke about how i'd use dog shampoo because i have a dog right and Zoe. 
yeah, Zoe. Oh, okay. Zoe. And I used dog shampoo and I tweeted like the self-deprecating joke about how I didn't know the difference. And <laughs> it was this crazy, this really happened. It yeah, I think surreal. I remember this now. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. And Seth Rogen, who was like at the time on some crazy Twitter bender and getting to arguments with, with people who are a lot more famous than me. And he, he jumped, <laughs> he just called me an idiot. And, uh, and the whole thing went viral. Um, actually, it worked out. I got like 2,000 new followers, but also like all these people. I mean, even to this day, I'll sometimes get these trolls who are like, oh, what do you know? You use dog shampoo. But at the time, a Fox host called me up and said, hey, do you want to come on and talk about this? And this was a guy who I knew from, he'd once written for my newspaper. I knew the guy. And I said yes, because he was a guy I knew, because we used to work together at the National Post. But then during the interview, I was kind of defending Seth Rogen because I said, yeah, you know, I was really alarmed by this because I love Seth Rogen's movies. And I do. I think Bad Neighbors is amazing, uh, super funny movie. But this host kept, <laughs> was like cutting me off. It's like, no, no, no. Seth's a member of the liberal elite and he's this and he's that. I was like, I didn't sign up for this. Seth's originally from Montreal, my hometown. Like he's a Jewish guy and he's, he's going through some crisis and whatever. Like I thought it was funny that I, I had five minutes of fame over dog shampoo, but right. all the host wanted to do was like do this Ann Coulter rant about how Hollywood liberals are, are bad people. Which, you know, like if, if you or I moved to Hollywood and became famous, we'd probably become douchebags too. Like it goes with the culture. So right. it's, it's not a particularly interesting phenomenon to discuss. Speaking of movies, um, you're writing a book on movies. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Sorry, this is the part in the Johnny Carson interview where it's like, oh yeah, I'm really excited about the next film. I think you have a clip of it and you show the clip. I don't have a clip of your book, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, it's called Magic in the Dark, One Family Century of Adventures in the Movie Business. Uh, it was just this incredible experience. It's, it's this family, it's the, the last name is Moss, M-O-S-S. -S. The guy is actually my co-author and my main source, Charles B. Moss Jr., He's the third generation leader, and his son is the fourth, of this film business. It's been in the Moss family since basically the creation of film. So Charles Moss's grandfather was one of this first generation of Jews who, who moved to the United States from, from Europe uh, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and created the film business kind of out of nothing. And they have this incredible family archive that I was able to work from, from their Times Square offices. Like right at the very heart of Times Square, they still own the building. And I just go through the whole history of film. People always ask, do I have a chapter on, on porn theaters? Yes, I do. Uh -huh. uh, because, because it actually was a somewhat sad chapter in film where a lot of these gorgeous film palaces in, in the 70s and 80s, unfortunately, got turned, turned into low rent. Yeah, you know, I, I was just I was just in Times Square this last weekend. I mean, I, I, I slept in Times Square last night, not the night before last. Um, and um, and I remember in maybe maybe still in the early 90s, I think, going to New York City on the train and being struck by just the, like every single place in that area was just all porn. And and then now fast forward it you know whatever how many years and it's I mean it might be Disney it's it, it looks completely different but but I don't think a lot of people know how how different New York was like at that time. Well, it's gone through at least two major cycles of call it decadence and revival because in the mid twentieth century there was a puritanical sweep against burlesque houses and I mean a lot of it was driven by homophobia. There's there's a great. There was a great play called The Nance, which was about uh, homophobia in the enforcement of entertainment laws. 
But then it happened again in the late 20th century, because if you went to Times Square, like in the 80s and early 90s, I mean, it was it was bad. Like there was a lot of crime, a lot of porn. And unfortunately, like I have no problem with people in general, with people selling porn. But unfortunately, what happens is it tends to go hand in hand with with sex trade and like, you know, money laundering. There's a lot of bad stuff that goes with it. And so then these laws were passed that I think, I think it was like only 20 or 30% of your inventory could consist of triple X stuff. So you get these weird situations where these people like 30% would be a porn store and the other part would be, I don't know, they'd be selling hardware, whatever it was, or they'd be selling books that weren't porn that, you know, no one was buying and it became uneconomical and they all sold out. And then the big thing was when the Lion King came in and Disney invested heavily. I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was the old Amsterdam theater. Uh, right. And that transformed it. And then, you and don't now think that, was Julia, that wasn't Giuliani instituting new laws that made it, it so you, they'd have to all go out of business. So, well, I mean, yeah. And the legacy there is politically mixed because conservatives like Giuliani's law and order agenda, but it was also very dirigist from an economic and zoning perspective where they were saying, you know, we got to clean up the filth. It ended up being a hyper-capitalist thing where like now middle-class, upper-middle-class families roll in and spend thousands of dollars on disney entertainment. This is pre-COVID. I mean, COVID has, right. has destroyed some of these businesses, although I think they'll come back. I, I was just, I was in New York on my way to Tennessee and I already saw signs of extensive revival just in the last few months. Times Square, it was interesting. In, in, in the mid-20th century, it was a glamour destination. You would get dressed up. And Charles, we have the section of the book. Charles Moss was... Uh, he lived out in Long Island, but he would come in. He put on like his little bar mitzvah suit to go see a movie. He, he went to a lot of film openings. There's all these mm -hmm. pictures, of, pictures of him as a little kid with Marilyn Monroe and stuff. It was actually quite incredible. You dress up to go to dinner and a show, and a show could mean a movie. And then it hit rock bottom, and then it revived. But it revived in this kind of like mass market family way. Whereas before it was kind of like more of a Frank Sinatra scene. And the film business was just at the heart of all this stuff. Yeah, it was it was wonderful to research this and learn a lot about New York. I spent a lot of great trips in New York City visiting architectural destinations. And, and a lot of it has to do with immigration because a lot of the film business, it popped up in in southern parts of Manhattan, which which were basically where the schmata business was, where mm. a lot of the people who who got into the film business were people who were in the clothing business, the Jewish immigrants, and they saw their margins were getting destroyed because every immigrant, there was all these skilled tailors coming in from Europe, not just Jews, but, uh, and so, you know, a good tailor will come in and, and they were making peanuts because the market was flooded. And they said like, what's another all cash business that we can make money in and that isn't flooded. And they basically started throwing bed sheets up against the wall and showing movies. And, yeah, and that was- yeah, and that's kind of, that's how it happened. That's great. Well, I look forward to learning more in the book. And maybe once, once it's out in October, we'll bring you back again to talk about it. So I, this is a Jewish podcast. And uh, I want to ask you a little bit about your Jewishness. I think on your Twitter profile, it says you're a lapsed Jew. I, I've talked to you, you know, not just on this podcast, but since then, you're clearly somebody who's been at some point immersed in Jewish life, and you know a lot about it. So how, how, how what role does... Uh, being Jewish play in your life and your worldview? So the reason I put lapsed Jew in my Twitter profile is to basically protect Gentiles from embarrassment when they, you know, occasionally one of these social justice enthusiasts will come in and say, as a wasp, you know nothing about hate, you know nothing about this and that. And ah, like, ah, well. I see. So part of it is just to give fair warning to these social justice fanatics who um, who see the name K and assume that I came over on the Mayflower or the Canadian equivalent of the Mayflower. I went to Jewish school for the first, I guess, five years of my schooling, 
what really hurt my connection to Judaism was I've always been horrible at second languages. And we did a lot of Hebrew instruction, like, you know, three, four hours a day of Hebrew. And I could never learn it properly. And I grew up in Quebec and never learned French properly. Uh, in college, I spent four years trying to learn Japanese, never learned that properly. I, I did three years of Latin in high school. But second languages for, was always super painful for me. Mm -hmm. And and so I came to associate Judaism with really frustrating, failed attempts to learn Hebrew and feeling like an idiot. And I had one teacher who was, made me feel pretty dumb. So Judaism, I kind of came to associate as the thing that made me feel stupid about myself. I'd go to synagogue. I went to synagogue on Saturdays until I was, I guess, 13, until my bar mitzvah. And I didn't understand anything and it felt boring. So that was the thing that kind of alienated me from Judaism. But my mother in particular did a very good job of emphasizing the intellectual aspects of Judaism. Mordecai Richler, actually Mordecai Richler's son, Jacob, was in my class uh, in, in high school. And I read a lot of his books and right. you know, learned about immigrant Jewish life in Canada. Right. Those and, are big books. Yeah. You know, and that and on top of that, there's there's also like the mass market infusion of everything from Seinfeld to I'm not even sure if Seinfeld or Mel Brooks even counts as Jewish humor anymore. It's American humor. Right. Um, but it had a particular resonance for me because when <laughs> when Seinfeld would talk about Del Boca Vista, we went to Del Boca Vista every year. My grandparents had a place in Bell Harbor. And the social interaction among the, the well-tanned cabana denizen at their condo was like, it was Jack Klompas. Like it was exactly right. like life in Seinfeld. So I, I went to, I went to Bell Harbor every year, by the way, okay. Surfside actually, Surfside Bell Harbor every year for during winter break. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Surfside isn't really Bell Harbor, David. I uh, know, I know, so yeah, but it's walking <laughs> distance. So walking Surfside, distance. Surfside is where we would walk to get our coffee and go to the pharmacy then we'd walk back to Ball Harbor. So I just, I have a right. story because, so if you were at Surfside, you were across the street from, you remember the Neiman Marcus that was across the street. Of course. In the mall. Yeah. So those are the Bell, at Harbor, the Bell Harbor mob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those were the, a lot of fancy people in the Bell Harbor Mall. Well, so yeah, well, it got fancier uh, as the years passed, but I remember yeah, like every, every day I would stand with my grandmother waiting for the valet to bring her, her, her Buick Skylark so she could drive across the street and park it and we'd have grilled cheese sandwiches and then drive back across the street. And that was life there. But again, that whole life, I mean, this is, I'm not describing anything religious. I'm describing something cultural. So that whole thing is part of who I am as a Jew. It's a very cultural thing. Unfortunately, again, you know, I'm not religious. Did you, uh, did you go to the Rascal House, by the way? No. The, the Wolfie Cohen's Rascal House, which was a restaurant. It was a few miles north of of Bow Harbor area but it was the restaurant that you'd see like Jackie Mason would freak okay so yeah well the only reason we would go north there is to go see the highlight uh right that's right if you, <laughs> if you went to, if you go if you went to Dania you could see highlight and uh my, my grandfather liked to bet gambling was a thing uh, have you been to Israel so that's the thing when I was at the National Post especially this is the Canadian newspaper where I work, worked at I wrote about Israel all the time and I went, I would go every couple of years, I would go there journalistically. I had friends who were there. I'd sometimes go on social trips. So I spent a week, Yad Vashem had a study course for journalists on the Holocaust. And I did Yad Vashem. I did a driving trip all the way up north. Uh, at one point I went down to Eilat. I would go to Israel a lot and I would write about it, but I would write about it in, in a geopolitical way. And I, I, I wasn't writing about it in any kind of spiritual way. And at the time, like, it's difficult to remember now, but 
I remember in particular 2002, 2003, this is when the second intifada was, was in full force. Israel was a leading issue in what we would call the culture wars. Um, right. You remember like British newspapers were publishing these really horrifying cartoons of Ariel Sharon eating babies and stuff. It was like yeah. really d dark stuff. Now it's interesting now, I mean, you still see a shadow of that. Progressives still have this instinctive thing. Of, oh yeah, we, sh we should say bad stuff about Israel. That's kind of like part of our shtick. Like <laughs> it's, it, but, but it's not like their heart isn't into it in the way it really was 20 years ago. Well, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate your, your editing and writing. I was thrilled to have my first piece in Quillette a couple of weeks ago. Thank you for promoting my work, including my book. But I'll, I'll take this opportunity to say that, that your piece, I think, is a real eye-opener. It's, it's at Quillette. People can Google your name, Google Quillette. And, and for those who haven't read it, sorry, I sound like a host, but I, I, I want to make sure, sure people read it, is, uh, it's a really good insight into the problems and challenges facing institutional Jewish leaders trying to navigate the social justice landscape. Because one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about, synagogue politics, certain issues, Israel, and this is going back maybe 10, 20 years, gay marriage have been always big issues in Canadian synagogues. I went to a reconstruction of synagogues. So it's free. But, you know, even at a reconstruction synagogue 20 years ago, gay marriage, you know, there was, there was pushback on it. Sure. Um, and, but now what your article does is it's an eye opener on how it's not just those two issues or it's about issues that really have nothing directly to do with Judaism, black lives matter, gender stuff. So a progressive Jewish leader or a leader who wants to be on side on these issues, it isn't just two or three issues. They have to be on side on like a hundred issues. And it was such an eye opener because I think maybe a lot of people, including the Jewish community, think that maybe people on that level are kind of insulated from it. But as you make clear, you show us inside the sausage factory, they are not insulated from it. it was really <laughs> they are not insulated. No, I, I just uh, I just had coffee with a prominent conservative rabbi who's really struggling with this stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about that. Most of them don't want to go to public right now, but but they're really struggling with how to navigate their own congregations. And it, it, these are challenging well, times when when they go public i know a guy okay so i'm yeah. gonna I'll, I'll know who to refer them to yeah <laughs> okay sounds great well thanks a million talk soon thank you thanks take care if you would like to support quillette please consider becoming a patron head to our patreon page that's patreon.com forward slash quillette if you haven't already follow us on social media we're on twitter facebook and instagram do you like what you're hearing Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.